they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this first Friday of 2023, January 6, 2023. We will begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Pleni sunt celia terra, gloria tua, Hosanna in excelsis. Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death, amen. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray, pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with the first letter of John. We are going to be talking today about the Magi and the star that they followed, and their meaning, the meaning of all this for us. I mean, 2,000 years ago it happened, so what? You know, what, what does it mean for me today, right? And that's what we want to understand. What does it mean for me today? But I want to read this from the letter of John. Um, John First letter of John, chapter 5, verses 5 through 13. Beloved, we in, who indeed is the victor over the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came through water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies, and the Spirit is truth. So there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are of one accord. If we accept human testimony, the testimony of God is surely greater. Now the testimony of God is this, that he has testified on behalf of his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar by not believing the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God gave us. And this is the testimony. There's a colon there, sorry. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever possesses the Son has life. Whoever does not possess the Son 
of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John is telling us that the victor over the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And do we have a witness? Yes, we do. It, it, you know, it, as a matter of fact, um, the gospel today is from the gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. And after Jesus is baptized, um, a voice comes from heaven that says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father's voice was heard. He acknowledges that Jesus is his son, and that makes him equal to God. And remember, when Jesus was crucified, this is the accusation that the scribes and Pharisees bring against him in the end, that he has to die because he claimed to be God's son, making himself equal to God. And um, so there was clear, clearly the, the people of his time understood his claim, and the early Christians understood his claim, and they, they went to their death as witnesses to this. Now, he says that um, Jesus came through water and blood. Well, how is this? Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. He comes through water. He also comes through blood. He has a baptism with which to be baptized and how he was constrained until it was accomplished. And he was speaking about his passion, his death on the cross. He shed his blood to free us from sin. And it is the spirit who testifies. Remember, the father sends the son and the spirit. And we talked about this last week, that the um, mission, or maybe I was talking about it in Bible study <laughs> because of the part of the catechism we're reading, the mission of the Son and the Spirit cannot be separated. The Son and the Spirit are sent by the Father. The Son is sent, and then the Father and the Son send the Spirit to complete the work of the Son. And the church is sent by the, the Son and the Spirit, and it is it, the, the mission of the Son, the Spirit, that is passed on to the church and the church is, has this mission that it shares with the son and the spirit. And it's not like there are not three missions. There's one mission and, and the son, the spirit and the church accomplish this mission, this mission of building the kingdom of God on earth. And so we are to witness to the reality that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, but he is, not a human person. He's a divine person who became man and took to himself a human nature and lived among us. And he, he lived in a real historical time. He really took to himself a human nature. He wasn't play acting. He wasn't pretending. He really took to himself a human nature. And, and only God could reveal this to us. This isn't something man would have made up. Not, nothing that man would have figured out for himself. Okay, God became man in order to redeem man and reunite him to God because man had turned away from God by sin. And when man turned away from God by sin, he committed offense, an offense that was infinite because any offense against God is infinite and only God can pay the price to make up for the offense. So God became man so that in his human nature, he could suffer in union with the second person of the Blessed Trinity, making his human suffering of infinite value. And therefore, he could suffer for all of us and pay the price for the crime that we had committed against God by turning away from God and re bringing us back, recapitulating all things in himself. All of creation was brought back to God in Christ. 
And interestingly enough, that brings us to this Feast of the Epiphany. What is this Feast of the Epiphany that we are celebrating? By the way, in the Universal Church, it is celebrated today on um, January 6th. And it's liturgically celebrated here in the, in the West, um, at least in the United States, I believe Canada, on Sunday. It'll be celebrated on Sunday. It won't be celebrated liturgically today, but it will be celebrated Sunday. So we have this, this story, which isn't just a made-up story. It's historical. The church confirms the historicity of the fourfold gospel. There's only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, fourfold four aspects, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it forms one gospel, one good news, and they're not made up. These are eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses tell the truth of what they experienced, and the gospels really are the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These men wrote down those things which God intended for them to write down and nothing more, and the church unhesitatingly affirms the historicity of the Gospels. Look at Vatican Council, two documents, Dei Verbum, paragraph 25, or number 25. So we have these men coming from the East, these Magi. And who are they? What does it mean that they came? What would inspire them to come? And what does it mean for us that they came? And how did they know to come? And I was reading through... um, well, Pope Benedict XVI, Jesus of Nazareth, and it's interesting, he wrote this, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, he wrote it as Joseph Ratzinger, as a scripture scholar. He's not saying that this is the magisterial teaching of the church. He's saying this is his own scriptural scholarship, but he is a world-class theologian and world-class scripture scholar. He's very knowledgeable, very well-read, and he knows the modern scholarship, He knows the errors of the modern scholarship. He knows the difficulties of the modern scholarship. And he also knows the truths of the church and how to reconcile things that seem to be difficult in the scriptures with the truths that we know to be true, what the church teaches. And so he gives us a whole, you know, historical and geographical framework of the narrative of the wise men. He talks about, you know, where they came from. And we have to remember, and again, The scripture, the story, the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really became man at a specific time and place in history. And so there is a historical context in which it takes place. And yet there's a timelessness about the scriptures because the scriptures are the word of God that he speaks to us just as the word of God, the second person of the blessed Trinity takes flesh and becomes human. He remains the second person of the blessed Trinity, the second, the son of God. That's the person that he is. And so even though he takes to himself a human nature in time and space, nonetheless, the second person of the blessed Trinity existed from all of eternity (laughs) with his father and the Holy Spirit. So we want to talk about the Magi and the meaning of their coming, who they are, and what was this star that they followed. We want to use the works of Pope Benedict XVI, God have mercy on his soul, and may he be speedily brought to heaven. And may God have mercy on all of us. And may we 
Know the truth, for only the truth will set us free. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more. Please tell your friends and family to join us on Bible with the Barber. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, January the 6th, first Friday of the month of uh, January, first Friday of the year of 2023. Remember that it's first Friday. We honor the Sacred Heart of Jesus on the first Friday of the month. Spend time with him in the, in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, go and make visits to Jesus in the Eucharist. If you want to know the Lord Jesus, you need to spend time with him. And he's really present in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. Um, you don't have to be Catholic to believe that. It's just it's what he said. He said, this is my body, this is my blood at the Last Supper. And many non-Catholics have experienced that. Um, the, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist when they come into a Catholic church. That Jesus is really there. So we're talking about the Magi, and what do we have? In Matthew's Gospel 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we have what? Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east come, from Jer- come to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So Matthew sets Jesus' birth in a very historical context. Herod is king of the Jews. What's interesting, in the Gospel of Luke, you have, um, remember in Luke, it says that um, Caesar Augustus had ordered a census. Look at Luke 2, 1 through 21. And so Joseph has to go out of Nazareth to go to Bethlehem to be registered because of this census. So we have two kings working here, two earthly kings. Jesus is situated right in the midst of this history. Um, and there's actually the, the time of that census is set. <laughs> they, they tell you when it was. And we're not going to go into that today. But here's so it's interesting because these two kings both had a claim. OK, uh, Caesar, he, he claims to be the one who has um, the, it brought peace to the world. Yeah. The Romans brought peace by force. It's like you're going to obey us or we're going to wipe you out. So you better obey. <laughs> so you better be peaceful. OK, that kind of peace. And Herod has at least tried to claim to be the Messiah of the Jewish people. So you have these two kings, and and what a contrast they are to the newborn child, right? This newborn child. So where is this place? Bethlehem. Now, it's interesting that when the Magi come, Herod is disturbed, and so is all of Jerusalem with him. And Herod calls the... um, he calls together the scribes of the Jewish people to ask them where was the Messiah to be born. Now, what's interesting is what they tell him is they tell him the one prophecy in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what is written. But what they don't refer to is a couple of other prophecies. And one was the prophecy in Genesis 4, 49, 10, where when Jacob is blessing his sons, he blesses Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he who come, he comes to whom it belongs and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So um, it was predicted, it was prophesied that a, a son of the line of Judah would reign. And um, then we have what? 
we have also a pagan king. Remember when the Jews came into the Holy Land and they're fighting the Moabites and the Moabites have this, this prophet, Balaam, and the king of Moab summons Balaam to curse the Israelites. And that we remember the story, Balaam is going to curse them and his donkey stops and he won't go and Balaam's beating his donkey and the donkey speaks. He said, why are you beating me? Balaam's like, because you won't go. Well, he said, well, look. And there's an angel blocking the way. And when Balaam looks up, he's able to see the, the angel. And the angel tells him, you will not curse Israel. You won't do it. And Balaam, he's a pagan prophet. He's not an Israelite. So Balaam goes to the king of Moab and he goes to bless, um, <laughs> he goes to bless, uh, he goes to bless, um, goes to curse the Israelites for the king of Moab. And this is what comes out of his mouth. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And that um, it's in Numbers 3.18. And so um, he can't curse them. He's blessing them. And he's saying that there will come a king. Um, it's not yet, but a star shall come forth for Jacob. Now, it's interesting. Matthew doesn't refer to this prophecy by Balaam. Okay, he doesn't. And he's, Matthew is very, very careful to try and prove the messiahship of of Jesus by his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But um, what's interesting about Balaam's star is that the star he prophesizes is not a celestial body. It's a person. Okay. It's the coming King himself, who is the star that shines upon the world and determines its fate. Okay. Still the context of star and kingship could have influenced the idea of the star that pertains to this king and points toward him. And um, Joseph Ratzinger writes in Jesus of Nazareth, hence we may freely assume that this non-Jewish pagan oracle would have circulated outside Judaism in some shape or form and would have set people thinking the question how people outside Israel would be able to recognize in a king of the Jews, the bearer of salvation destined also for them is one to which will we return. So the Magi, somehow they recognize that in this King of the Jews, there is salvation for the whole world, not just for the Jews. Okay. So the Magi, well, um, Magi were, could have been members of the priest of the Persian priestly class in the, um, in Hellenistic culture, they were regarded as rulers of a distinctive religion, but at the same time, their religious ideas were thought to be strongly influenced by philosophy so that the Greek philosophers have often been portrayed as their pupils. And I'm quoting again from Pope Benedict's book, Jesus of Nazareth, the infancy narratives. So, but the other meaning, um, they were possessors and users of supernatural knowledge. The other meaning of magi. They were possessors and users of supernatural knowledge and ability. Magicians and finally deceivers and seducers. Remember in the Acts of the Apostles, you have Simon the, the Magus named Bar-Jesus. Bar and he's described by Paul as a son of the devil and enemy of all righteousness in Acts 13.10. He was using his sorcery to control people to get power over people, okay? 
So they could be deceivers and seducers. So you have two, two magis. You have magis who could be philosophers, honestly seeking the truth. What does a philosopher do? Loves wisdom. He's seeking the truth. Okay, philosophy, love of wisdom. Or you can have a, you can have a magi who is seeking to control other people and rule over them by his magic tricks. Okay, so, you know, you have this, you know, twofold meaning of the Magi. And this, what's interesting about this is Joseph Ratzinger says, this illustrates the ambivalence of religion in general. It can become the path to true knowledge. Religion can become the path to true knowledge, the path to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But when it fails in his presence to open up to him and actually opposes the one God and Savior, it becomes demonic and destructive. Did you catch what he said there? When religion fails in his presence, Christ's presence, to open up to him, to open up to Jesus Christ, and actually opposes God and Savior, the God and Savior, the one God and Savior, it becomes demonic and destructive. So religion can lead to the truth if we're willing to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. But if we oppose him, it will become demonic and destructive. And we have so many examples of that, even in our world today, okay? So the New Testament, you know, we encounter these two types of magi. You know, St. Matthew's magi, um, the story that their religious and philosophical wisdom is obviously an incentive to set off in the right direction. It is the wisdom that ultimately leads people to Christ. The Magi found Christ. But in the Acts of the Apostles, you have Magus, and he doesn't lead to Christ. <laughs> and he, he, he already wants to destroy Jesus and his message. So for the Magi of Matthew... It is the first of the four meanings that applies. Even if they were not exactly members of the Persian priesthood, they were nevertheless custodians of religious and philosophical knowledge that had developed in that area and continued to be cultivated. And so, you know, the Magi, they come, they follow the star, and they, they come and astrologers... Um, are they just astrologers, though? Because they're willing to leave everything behind to go find a king who is not of their race and to worship him. They're going to submit everything of their past life to him by bowing down before him and kneeling before him. Okay? So, yeah, they could have been astronomers, but not everyone who could predict and observe the conjunction of the planets would have associated this with a king of Judea and held some significance for them. Before the star could convey a message, there had to be a promise in circulation, something akin to Balaam's oracle. We know from Tacitus and Suetonius that speculation was rife at the time that the ruler of the world would emerge from Judah. An expectation that Flavius Josephus applies to Vespasian, consequently finding way into his favor. All kinds of factors could have combined to generate the idea that the language of the star contained a message of hope. 
But none of this would have prompted people to set off on a journey unless they were people of inner unrest. They're searching for the truth and they haven't found it and they're still searching. People of hope, people on the lookout for the true star of salvation. The men of whom Matthew speaks were not just astronomers. They were wise. They represent the inner dynamic of religion towards self-transcendence which involves search for the truth, a search for the true God, hence philosophy in the original sense of the word. Wisdom then serves to purify the message of science. Wisdom purifies the message of science. The rationality of that message does not remain at a level of intellectual knowledge, but seeks understanding in its fullness and so raises reason to its loftiest possibilities to transcend the world that we see to come to the knowledge of the God that we do not see. From all that has been said, we can obtain some sense of the outlook and the knowledge that prompted these men to set off in search of the newborn king of the Jews. We could only say that they represent the religious moving toward Christ as well as the self transcendence of science toward him and there's that music and we're going to have to take a break and i hope you're excited about learning all this and i hope you get pope benedict's book jesus of nazareth at least the infancy narratives and learn more don't go away we'll be back thank you for listening and share this with your friends now back to bible with the barbers if you have a question or comment Call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, January 6th, but there's actually the Feast of the Epiphany, but liturgically we will celebrate it here in the United States on Sunday. So we have the Magi, and who are they? Well, again, we are. Um, they represent the religions moving toward Christ as well as the self-transcendence of science toward him. Remember, the universe did not create God. God created the universe. So the whole universe um, speaks to us about God. All right. So because of this, these wise men, and they are wise, they're looking for the truth. So they are successors of Abraham because they set off. Remember, God is, Abraham was called by God and he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and he sets off on a journey to a land he does not know in obedience to God. And so these men see the star and they set off in obedience to God and they set out. So the church's tradition reads the Christmas story quite spontaneous in the light of Isaiah 1-3. What does it say in Isaiah 1-3? You know, how, why do we have an ox and an ass at the crib? Well, it says, an ox knows its owner and an ass its master, its master's manger. But Israel does not know my, my people do not, had not understood. They do not understand. So in Isaiah 1-3, God is reprimanding his people for not knowing him even though the ox and the ass know their owner. And so here in Isaiah, you have the ox and the ass at the crib because they represent the reality that they know their maker. They know their maker. Okay. And then um, Pope Benedict goes on to say, with the result that the ox and the ass found their way to the crib, so too the Magi story was read in conjunction with Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60. Well, in Psalm 72, verse 10, it talks about 
Let me get this real quick. I have to flip back and forth here because I don't have all these passages marked ahead of time, but you guys all can find it. Psalm 72, verse 10. And I read this yesterday, but the kings of Tarshish and the Isles shall offer gifts. The kings of Arabia and Seba shall bring tribute. All kings shall pay him homage. All nations shall serve him. People say, well, you know, at the, at the, at the crib, we have the magi. I mean, we have the, the, the king. We call them kings, but they were really magi. They were just astrologers. They were just magicians. Well, um, in, in Psalm 72, it says the kings. So there, there's something there of the ancient world that we're not fully understanding. And then in Isaiah 60, we have, Rise up in splendor, your light shall come. The glory of the Lord shines upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and the thick clouds of the people. But upon you the Lord shines, and over you appears his glory. Nations shall walk by your light, and kings by your shining radiance. Okay? Beautiful, beautiful. Caravans of camels, uh, verse 6. Caravans of camels shall fill you. Dromedaries from Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba, shall come, bearing gold and frankincense, and proclaiming the praises of the Lord. Okay? So where do we get these ideas that the... That the three magi were kings that the scripture calls them kings. And so there's something there that's um, a mystery. But but the reality is that in the ancient world, the magi were um, consultants to the king and could be considered, it's, it's like they had the power of the king. They, so they were considered kings in a sense, okay? But, but these men, again, they're seeking the truth. They're seeking the truth. And so the wise men from the east become kings and with them camels and dromedaries were added to the crib. Okay, so this isn't just, it's not just some kind of added on, you know, out of nowhere, um, somebody made this up somewhere because they wanted to make a nice story. All of this is talked about in scripture. That's why it's all added. This is what I love about Pope Benedict. He, he knows the current historical setting in which we are and he also knows the ancient historical setting in which Christ became man. He knows the history and, and, you know, God have mercy on his soul and, and read his writings. I, we were so blessed to have such a man as Pope and to have such a man as prefect for the Congregation of the Faith under Pope John Paul II for 25 years. So very blessed. So St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict tried to really, really preserve the faith, the truths that Jesus Christ taught. And as Pope, Pope Benedict said, it's not my job to proclaim my own theological opinions and as if they were magisterial teachings for the universal church. So when, like this, when he wrote this, he said, this isn't magisterial teaching. This is my theological reflections. These are my scripture scholar reflections. I'm not trying to impose this on all of you as if this is dogmatic truth. But when it came to dogma, he was clear. And so very clear. So let's go back and read what he wrote and let's live it. Not just read it, but live it. And that's, what did the Magi do? They didn't just read the stars and say, oh, wonderful, a new born king of the Jews and this fulfills Balaam's prophecy and oh, isn't that wonderful, let's rejoice. And no, they left everything and went to find the newborn king of the Jews. So while the prophetic context of these texts expands the province of these figures to include the extreme west, which is Tarshish, which was in Spain, Tradition has further developed this idea of universality by conceiving them as kings from all three known continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Remember, oftentimes the kings are represented as African, Asian, and Europe. The black king is part of parcel of this. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, 
There is no distinctions of race and origin. In him and through him, humanity is united, yet without losing any of the richness of variety. Okay, so everyone is called to know Christ. We're not supposed to exclude anyone. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. It doesn't matter where we came from. What matters is, is that we are one in the Lord, that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, and that we form his body. The church is the mystical body of Christ, and all of us are individually members thereof. Later, the three kings came to be associated with phases of human life, youth, maturity, and old age. This too makes good sense, highlighting the fact that each of the various stages of human life finds its true meaning in its inner unity in companionship with Jesus. Our life only has meaning in union with God. And this is the beautiful thing I love about Pope Benedict. Instead of making fun of Christian tradition and denigrating it, and saying that, oh, psh, that couldn't have been because of this and that and the other thing. He's showing you that, yeah, there's the literal historical sense, but then there's the allegorical sense and the moral sense. And we need to realize that it has deeper meaning. And, and as, you know, as, as many have discovered about the scripture, the more you read it, the deeper it goes. And even Jordan Peterson talks about this. He says, you read it and you think, oh my gosh, and you discover something new. And then you read it again. You're like, oh my word, there's something deeper. And then you read it again. And it's like, oh no, it's going deeper and deeper. And the deeper you go, the deeper it gets because it's God. It's infinitely deep. And the scriptures speak to us about God and it's God's holy word. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Are we listening? Does it have meaning for us today? Yes, it has meaning for us today. Are we willing to leave everything to look for Christ? And then follow him and give up our paganism, give up our attachments to the things of this world, give up everything we know in order to follow Jesus Christ. Are we willing to suffer like he suffered? The key point of this, the wise men from the East are a new beginning. They represent the journeying of humanity toward Christ. They initiate a procession that continues throughout history. Not only do they represent the people who have found their way to Christ, they represent the inner aspirations of the human spirit, the dynamism of religions and human reason toward him. We are looking for God. We were made by God to be, live in union with God. And so as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So we're always searching for him. But there's always the danger that we're going to look in the wrong place. That like Simon Magus, we're going to use religion to control other people, to manipulate them, to not find Christ, but to war against him. Just like Herod, instead of finding Christ, he wants to destroy him. And in the end, Pilate will condemn Jesus to death, although he's not destroying him. He declares him innocent, but condemns him to death. We have to beg the Lord for the wisdom to know the truth and the courage to follow the truth. Now that the star that they followed, what about this star that they followed? And you know, the people tried to explain from just um, the terms of astronomy, you know, what happened? Was there a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars in, or Jupiter and Saturn and Pisces? And what was, you know, was this the star? Was this, well, that's interesting because maybe that's so, maybe that was the beginning, but how would that have led them? You know, St. John Chrysostom says, 
this that this star was not of a common sort, or rather not a star at all, as it seems at least to me, but some invisible power transformed into this appearance is in the first place evident from its very course, for there is not any star that moves in this way. And what is what 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 do we mean by that? Well, much of the church's tradition has underlied the miraculous nature of the star, as in the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who saw the sun and the moon dancing around the star. Likewise, in the ancient Epiphany hymn from the Roman Breviary, which states that the star outshone the sun. Okay, so you have this because the star doesn't move as normal stars. And then when they get to Jerusalem, they're not seeing the star. So they go to Herod's palace. But then after they leave Herod, all of a sudden the star is there. And then the star leads them to the exact house where Jesus is. Ordinary star? Or is it an angel leading them? And this is the church understands that. And again, one of the things you can you can have, you know, Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger in his, he goes into, you know, the, the astronomy and what the astronomers say and how Jupiter and Saturn had aligned in Pisces and stuff like this. But he goes on about something else. Um, you know, it could well have appointed, oops, guess what? We're going to have to talk about the star after the break. And there's so much more to talk about in regards to this feast and its meaning. But most of all, it means that God really became man, that God truly is love. He loves us so much that he is not afraid to humble himself, to make himself vulnerable and little in order to draw us to himself. Let us be drawn to Christ. May Jesus live in our hearts now and forever. Don't go away. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. So we're talking about the wise men and the star, okay? And you had the, you know, the, apparently the astronomers have established that in uh, B.C. 7 or 6, there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the sign of Pisces. And so, you know, the, the, this could have been observed by the Babylonian Persian region, and they might have say, okay, here's the star. But how would they have known about it unless they knew about Balaam's prophecy and, and um, the star would rise over Jacob, Numbers 24, 17. So these, these men move out, and they're going out of their land to go. And so you have this element. And what then? This, okay, so if these wise men led by the star to search for the king of the Jews represent the movement of the Gentiles toward Christ, this implies that the cosmos speaks of Christ, even though the language is not yet fully intelligible to man in his present age. The language of creation provides a great many pointers. It gives man an intuition of the creator. Moreover, it arouses the expectation, indeed the hope, that this God will one day reveal himself. And at the same time, it elicits an awareness that man can and should approach him. So God uses the created world. This is 
Benedict writing, but, but my commentary, God uses the created world to draw us to himself, to bring us. And what's interesting is one of the fathers of the church, Gregory of Nyssa, says that the very moment when the Magi adore Jesus, astrology came to an end as the stars from then on traced the orbit determined by Christ. In other words, the ancients had worshipped the stars. They had looked to the stars to show them their destiny, looked to the stars to be their wisdom, their God. And now the Magi come and adore Christ. No more astrology. No more astrology. No more astrology. The orbit of the stars is traced. It's is then on traced. The orbit of the stars is determined by Christ. Christ is not determined by the stars, okay? So remember, you know, on entering the Gentile world, the Christian faith had to grapple once again with the question of the, the astrological divinities, right? Hence the letters that Paul wrote to Ephesus and Colossians. Paul emphasizes that the risen Christ has conquered all the powers and forces in the heavens and that he reigns over the entire universe. So it is not the star that determines the child's destiny. It is the child who directs the star. The child who directs the star. So it is God revealing himself. God reveals himself. And there's so much more to cover here. But I want to bring up in the, in the, um, uh, an article from Father Hardin about the visitation of the Magi. And he points out very interestingly, and again, something that I've mentioned already, Herod symbolizes the state. And from the very beginning of Christianity, the birth of Christ, the state is already wanting to destroy God's influence in the world. Herod wants to destroy the Messiah. He wants to be the Messiah. Man wants to be God. And it hasn't changed in 2,000 years of history of Christianity. We still have this struggle between the state and religion. And by the way, you know, the state is not religion. But, and, and religion is above the state if it's the true religion of Jesus Christ, if it's the religion that Jesus Christ founded because God is God and we are not. And the state cannot tell us that we can't follow the law of God. And when the state makes laws that are opposed to the law of God, then we have to oppose those laws. Any law that is against the law of God, any man-made law against the law of God, is not a law that's binding, and we have to oppose it, not with violence, but firmly. And if that means martyrdom, you know, it's interesting. Here the Magi come, they suffer a martyrdom. They leave everything behind. And they bring what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these beautiful gifts. Gold that represents kingship. Frankincense that represents Godhead. And myrrh that represents a a couple of things I've discovered here in my readings. One, it was a burial. They embalmed bodies with myrrh because it slowed down the, the decaying process and it also covered the smell of death. But it was also used to anoint the Levitical priests. So here we have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the kingship, the divinity, and the priesthood brought, symbolized by the gifts brought by the Magi. That he is the true king, the universal king, the eternal king. That he is truly God incarnate, but he's truly man. And in his manhood, he can suffer and die, but also that he is a priest, the priest 
the high priest. Read the book of Hebrews. There's only one priesthood, and all ordained ministers, all ordained priests and deacons share in the one priesthood of Jesus Christ. So we want to follow the wise men, follow them to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, follow them to Bethlehem, humble ourselves before him, and remember that Christ is still present among us. And yes, we obey the state insofar as its laws are just. And we don't go around trying to cause insurrection and rebellion, but we do pray for our civil and government leaders, as Paul exhorts us in the letter to the Romans, to pray for those who are raised up to, to rule over you. They get their authority from God, so pray for them, that they will rule justly, that they won't do things like declare themselves king or take away our freedom to worship God or try and replace God with the state. We live in that kind of a world. And remember, this battle has gone on since forever. <laughs> you know, God, God revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. His people were supposed to bring him to the nations. But every time they got among the nations, instead of bringing God to the nations, they followed the gods of the nations <laughs> and fell away from God. So he had to chastise them. And again and again, he had to chastise them. And remember, when the, when the 10 tribes were taken away at the first you know, uh, exile, those tribes were dispersed very far throughout the world. They became you know, dispersed all throughout the world. And then finally, you have God's verdict on his people is the destruction of Jerusalem. He sent the Messiah, and they didn't accept him. Now, I'm not condemning the Jews of today. They were not the ones responsible. My sins are just as much responsible for the death of Christ as the Jews of his day, the Jewish leaders of his day, because he came to die for my sins, okay? But we want to pray for the conversion of all the Jews, that they all become back. God still loves his people. They're still his chosen people. They still have the prophets. They still have, you know, the Old Testament, insofar as they're faithful to it. And many of them are very faithful and try very hard to follow what God taught them in the Old Testament. But we need to pray for their full conversion. We need to pray for our own full conversion. We Christians are a scandal to the world, oftentimes, because we don't live our faith fully. We have to live our faith fully. We have to give up our sins. We have to give up our attachment to the things of this world. We need to give up our desire to want to fit in with the world. We're not here to just fit in with the world. We're here to lead the world to Jesus Christ. We're here, and Jesus Christ didn't come so that we could live a comfortable life in this world. He came to redeem us from our sins and to fill human suffering with his presence. So suffering remains. Jesus suffered. Even as a child, his life is threatened. Remember, immediately after the Magi depart, Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod wants to destroy the child. So we need to work for the coming of God's kingdom. We need to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. We've gotten ourselves in a mess in this world, a mess that we can't get ourselves out of. It's a mess that is beyond human remedy. And it seems to grow 
and grow and grow to the point was like, Lord, how much evil will you allow before you stop it? But remember, when God comes in to pass judgment and stop evil, you know, what does it look like? Well, the flood, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exiles in the Old Testament, you know, we pray God that we be converted before he has to come and chastise us. We pray for his mercy to come upon us. Like the Magi, let us find our way to the king. Let us acknowledge him as the king. Jesus Christ is truly the king. Jesus Christ is truly Lord, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are to live for him. And we are to give up our sins. The call to conversion. What is you know the call to conversion? What was Jesus's first words in the gospel? Repent. It's interesting. Pope Benedict, before he was Pope Benedict, when he was Joseph Ratzinger, the prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, gave an interview, and the interview was published in a book called The Ratzinger Report. And in that book, he says, Fatima and Lourdes are indispensable to the faith. Now, we know that Fatima and Lourdes are private revelation, and there's been no new public revelation, no, you know, nothing added to the deposit of faith since the death of the last apostle. So what could he mean? Well, what do the visions of Our Lady at Lourdes and Fatima teach us? Give up your sins, do penance for your sins, and return to God, who is already too much offended by sin. Indispensable to the faith, we have to rediscover the gospel. We cannot live in this world as if we belong to this world. You know, Teresa of Lisieux, when she was young, her family moved near some cousins of theirs. And her, before, not before too long, her father decided they needed to move away. And the reason Trez gives in her story of a soul in her autobiography was, our cousins were too clever at mixing being worldly with the practice of their religion. Zelie and Louis Martin recognized and realized that their duty as parents was to raise their children to be saints, to live in union with God at every moment of every day, day in and day out, no matter what was going on, and so that they couldn't compromise with the world and they couldn't be worldly if they were going to follow Christ. We have to make a choice. Are we going to follow Christ or are we going to follow the world? Will we hear Christ say, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you? Or will we hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Please God, we will hear the words, come you blessed of my father. Lord, help us to live in union with you, Help us to acknowledge your presence, to spend time with you in the Eucharist, to serve you in the poor, to carry out the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, to go to confession, to repent, and to open our hearts to you, Lord. Open our hearts to you like the wise men who followed the star. May we follow our, the guiding star of our guarding angel who wants to guide us to God. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for your support. Thank you to the radio stations that pick us up. Thank you to those of you who offer your prayers and your sufferings and your sacrifices for us and those who volunteer to help us. May God richly reward you. Merry Christmas, Holy Epiphany, Holy and Happy New Year, where Jesus is the King. <laughs>